0: I know. It's been a long time in coming, and I apologize. If it makes you feel any better, I just finished playing the game about 20 minutes ago. And, um, well, I don't have a better way to put this. Normally, I use these for my notes in order to, you know, be able to... (laughs) keep myself straight. I don't want to just go from memory because I tend to forget things. It's one of the things I like about the lore runs, for example. It's because I can remember things as I'm playing the game, right? But here I use my notes and whatnot. In this case, the notes were so extensive, I basically had to put them on my computer. And then we lost the printer, so that's why the monitor's on. I know I usually turn it off. Apologies. I hope you'll forgive both of the, the tardiness of this video And the fact that I am sitting rather than standing, and reading from my monitor rather than having it off. Because i got a lot to talk about. (laughs) Let's get right into it. You know how I like to do these things. We're going to start with downsides to the game, okay? First and foremost, downsides. Let's talk about load times, okay? There are significant problems with the load times basically put if you don't have the space to do the install option you're going to be staring at that little blue spinning heart for quite a while and even if you do do the install anytime you open the menu anytime you change zones or load a cutscene load times it's not terrible we're not talking like the the really bad ports to the ps1 terrible but it is it is kind of a downside it's something that's a little bit of a negative and it's unfortunate but not something that really affected my enjoyment of the game. I just felt like mentioning it here. But I do stress, you really do want to do that install. Because if you don't do the install, then the times are worse, and bad enough to the point where it affects your enjoyment of the game. I actually ended up buying a brand new card, partially for that reason. Also because I wanted FF7, 8, and 9 on there, but you get the point. <sighs> Second downside... I get that they're children, and they're trying to tell a story with the point, the fact, that the the connection between these three people. But I feel like there was a little bit too much emphasis on needless drama. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. I know that's kind of a synopsis thing, but really, I feel like they've spent just a little bit too much time on that, rather than the other more interesting things about the game. Finally, and most importantly, it's on the PSP. Now, here's the sad part. I... I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's indicative of just how long I have been working on this video that this is no longer a valid point, because what I was going to originally tell you about is how it's only available on the PSP, and that's the only option we get, and that's it. And that ties into another thing, but I'll get to that in a moment. Long story short, those of you who have any interest in Kingdom Hearts at all right now probably know that Kingdom Hearts 2.5 is already announced, already being worked on, is going to come out this year now. 2.5 will include Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix and Birth by Sleep Final Mix, as well as some cutscenes from uh, Recoded, I believe. Something I didn't care about that much, so it's probably Recoded. That's awesome. And that means that Birth by Sleep has entered the domain of the available. Let me explain for a little bit, because I actually want to talk about this topic. When it comes to Kingdom Hearts, Kingdom Hearts has a huge fan base. People like me, who are, you know, widespread gamers, people who like a large variety of games, people who like only certain types of games, people who just like the story and don't like games at all. You know, I've known many people from many different avenues of life who really enjoy the Kingdom Hearts series. But in order to actually enjoy it and play it, well, that's not really feasible for most of these people, is it? Because you have to purchase, or at least had to, past tense, a PS2... A Game Boy Advance, a, a DS or 3DS, a 3DS, uh, a, 3DS <laughs> a PSP, and I think that's it. Now that is that list has been brought down a bit over time, and now it's smaller than it's ever been. It's at the point now where all you need, all, is a PS3 and a 3DS in order to enjoy the entire series. Until Kingdom Hearts 3 comes out, of course. And that's a good thing. But let me highlight this point for you. For me, the PSP was a worthwhile purchase. Why? Because I've got, like, 20 games for it. I've talked about this before, that's what a console has to do for me. It has to provide a library I want. But most people don't have the availability to do that. They don't really have the budget. Because it's not really their primary hobby or their means of entertainment, you know, like it is for me. They have other primary means of entertainment, and this is a passing fancy. It's like Formula One is for me. I enjoy Formula One, a, a decent amount, actually. But if you asked me if I had to fork over the money to actually get tickets, and transport myself, and get hotels and all that fun stuff, that's not feasible. Not because I don't want to, because I just don't have that in my budget. Now granted, that's kind of a bad example, because Formula 1 is ludicrously expensive to attend. But you get my point. For these people buying a PSP and the game on the PSP, and the DS, and the 3DS, blah, 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 was just infeasible. It wasn't something they could really do. So most people, and I know several examples of this myself, only really could enjoy Kingdom Hearts 1, Kingdom Hearts 2, and later, Kingdom Hearts Re:Comm. Although usually not even that one, so it's basically just 1 and 2. Because the PS2 is such a commonplace console that either they or their friends usually had access to one. It's a lot easier to get access to a PS2 than it is a DS or a 3DS or a PSP for someone who isn't really a gamer. You follow? That problem has effectively been mitigated and destroyed because the PS3 is in the exact same boat. It is a lot easier to get a hold of a PS3 for someone who isn't a gamer than it is to get a hold of a PSP, a 3DS, etc. So people who have access to PS3s, and I know, again, several people myself who are really jazzed about this, can finally play Birth by Sleep for the first time, can play, uh, you know, Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, and watch 358 for the first time because PS3. So, bravo for actually doing something correct, Square Enix. I'm I'm astonished. (laughs) That's my cynicism showing, hang on. Uh, There we go. Oops, sorry about that. So that's not really a negative anymore. Now there is one other thing I want to talk about before I really keep going. And that is the fact that I know Birth by Sleep is a very divisive game in the Kingdom Hearts series. Even people I know who are fans of the series not only dislike, but actively hate Birth by Sleep. Loathe it and and find it derisive and just disgusting and derogatory towards the series. And I've seen some reasons for that. And while I don't agree personally, most of the people I've seen who talked like that, because nowadays I tend to only really interact with people who actually talk about things, have given me well-reasoned opinions as to why. And that's okay, and that's fine. But I'm mentioning this because if you're expecting me to do that, and you don't want to hear me praise this game nonstop, I suggest you find another video. And I don't mean that unkindly. I mean that as a genuine warning, because Birth by Sleep was my favorite Kingdom Hearts game, kind of tied with two. And then I replayed it, really paying attention, really analyzing it this time through. And now it is definitely my favorite Kingdom Hearts game. It is so much fun. I enjoyed so much replaying this game. I don't even have a way to put it into words. There are so many little details and subtleties and wonderful things and, and theory craftings and all this wonderful stuff that I just completely spaced or didn't pay attention enough to or forgot or whatever that I have enjoyed on this time through. Now, with those warnings out of the way, I'm going to do something I normally don't do. I'm going to give you a few tips for this game. And the reason why is because Birth by Sleep is, in my opinion, the most difficult Kingdom Hearts game to date. Not counting the fact that Recom was kind of different. That's not really difficult, it was just kind of aggravating. This was genuinely difficult, in a good way, in my opinion. I like to call it Donkey Kong Country difficult, because I feel like that's a game series that really successfully gets across the point of proper difficulty. Now, I know some of you are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I, I, every time I say something's difficult, someone says, Oh, that was easy, and I blows sprays through it without effort. Every single time, without question, so I'm not surprised by that. But if you're having troubles with this game, let me point out a few things. Number one, you cannot just mash attack to get your way through this. You can do that on a lot of trash, you can do that on some bosses, but there's a lot of wake-up-call bosses in this game, and there's a lot of wake-up-call sections in this game, and you really need to be paying attention in a lot of cases. Point two. When I played through this, I did, it, I did each of the three stories, I'll talk about that in just a moment, in a different manner. Terra, I did basically blind. Ventus, I got pretty much towards the end, then looked up a few things. Aqua, I was looking up things from the very beginning. And the difference between these three was colossal. I'm kinda glad I chose Aqua for my look up things in advance because Aqua is also, in my opinion, by far the most difficult of the stories. I'll get into why later. But what I'm trying to tell you is, if you're having any trouble with this, I recommend you look into things. The meld commands thing, which I'll talk about more later, is something you really want to understand what you're doing if you want the optimized result, but it is worth noting you don't have to look up if you just want to improve your abilities. That's something you can do, too. You can just blindly meld things and throw crystals on them, and the results will generally be better. That being said, a couple things, okay? Stop, Magnet, and an Abounding Crystal, okay? Now you get access to Stop and Magnet pretty early on, and you can first get Abounding Crystals when you get to Radiant Garden, okay? Once you have all three of these things, meld them, and you get an ability, which I don't even remember the name of it, because that's not the point. Equip it, level it up to max, and you have an ability called Experience Walker, which is actually a wonderfully designed ability, because it basically gives you experience based on your total distance previous to your, minus the amount of distance you had traveled previous to the amount of distance you moved on the X terrain. I, I probably said that a little bit wrong, but the point is, for example, if you go in a circle, you'll get hardly any X at all, but if you go in a straight line, you get more. And if you're, and this is true in combat, too, um, because it doesn't just tra- follow the X, it also follows the Y separately. Uh, am I sorry, this is actually Z, excuse me. Z and X and Y. You get my point. Any direction you move in, it will track how far you move and give you experience based on that, and that includes dodging and moving and attacking in combat. It basically ensures that you will be a a few levels higher than whatever you're doing, and like I said, you can get that very early on. Second thing, there's an ability called Mega Flare. Look it up. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to get it. It's not what I'm here for, but Mega Flare is... Frankly, overpowered. It's so overpowered, they actually nerfed it in the Final Mix version. The developers of the game have actually acknowledged that it's intended to be overpowered. Really, I got nothing else to say about that. If you're wondering why it's overpowered, though, anyone who's played a Kingdom Hearts game probably knows that the magic is, is like, you know, it's around you, or it's, it's a homing thing, or it's in this area, you know, it's something that's basically targeted. Mega Flare just hits everything in a big ol' colossal radius around you, without regards to targeting. Stays there for a few seconds, so if anything spawns in an the area, they also get hit by it. Oh, and it also hits for an absolute colossal amount of damage. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a room sweeper, you know what I mean? Finally, there's an ability for Ventus called Salvation. There's another one called Faith, but I prefer Salvation. It's an attack that heals you. Really, I don't feel like I have anything else to add to that. And one last point. This is more true for Aqua than anyone else. This is one of the very rare games where status effects are actually useful. Stop, Magnet, um, Slow, Mini, all of these abilities actually have a use for you. And I know that's weird to say that, but for those of you who are not in the know, most RPGs, especially the early and mid-Final Fantasies, those abilities were completely useless for the player. They basically existed for the enemies to use on you. There were some exceptions, but that's the general rule. This game in its entirety is an exception to that. Generally, only bosses are immune. And in some cases, they're not. You can still slow bosses for the most part. So, that's my tips section. Now, let's talk about gameplay of this game for a bit, shall we? First and foremost, the minigames aspect, I feel, was done properly in this one. Just my opinion. I know I've had mixed feelings about minigames and RPGs in the past, but one of the things I commented on, especially during my Kingdom Hearts 2 lore run, was so many of the minigames felt fun, but fluff. You do it once, and then you do it a second time for 100% completion, and that's it. They're easy. They're simple. They're they're basically brainless for all intents and purposes. And I don't really mean that as an insult, even though it kind of is. There wasn't much to them, is what I'm saying. Kingdom Hearts 2 felt like they were trying to cram too many different things into there, just to really show off, really to do their thing. And it just came. It just kind of spilled out over the edges. You follow? Birth by Sleep has much fewer mini-games, and all of them feel a lot funner. I took a note somewhere. Where is it? There it is. Forgive me, because I might be pronouncing this wrong. But there is basically a version of Itadaki Street. God, I have no idea how to pronounce that, even though I've been playing that game for forever. Most people call it a Japanese form of Monopoly. It's actually a board game I love the hell out of, and I've played many different versions of it. There's a Mario and Sonic version that's out there. There is, of course, the one in Birth by Sleep. They call it the Command Board uh, in birth by sleep. Not only is that a lot of fun, I recommend you do it even if you're not really that interested in it, If especially if you're going for some kind of completion thing, because there's quite a few really nice things you can get from it. In fact, if you know what you're doing, you can get some really high-powered abilities very early on just by doing the command board. But even ignoring that, my point is, it was fun. It was fun, it was optional, and... I liked replaying it. I actually have, on many occasions, picked up the game and just played the command board game, because it was fun. Then there's the racing. The racing isn't great, admittedly, but it's not bad, it's fun. And there's the ice cream game, which is basically just Simon Says, but that's interesting enough in its own right, and so forth and so on. You get where I'm going here. Actually, I'm not sure there were many other money games in that. Which is kind of my point. There were only a few, and it was obvious more work was done on them to make them more interesting, more engaging, more... in general. So props. Let's also talk about one other interesting thing about this game. One of my biggest complaints about the PSP has always been the analog thing. Now, I'm not a huge analog player in general. But I want to point this out. This is a standard PS2, PS3, etc. style controller. And this is your standard analog in this, right? Big old thing, and you just do this, right? In fact, this specific version, I don't know if you can tell, has an indent. So your your uh, finger will actually sit in there, and that way it becomes easier to move it in the different directions. The resistance is different, basically. <sighs> the PSP has this dinky thing that's about this tall <laughs> and this wide, and it only moves just a little bit in all directions, and it's terrible. I'm, I'm just going to say it. It's terrible. Uh, There are attachments, I believe, to fix it. But the point is, this is actually the first game that that's not really bothered me on. Which I thought was kind of weird. I'm not 100% sure why. I do have a theory... My theory is, in a nutshell, I think that because you only use it for a relatively small period of time, for example, you don't have to constantly hold it down. I mean, you do to move, but zones are relatively short, and then you have a cutscene, so you let go. Or you do it, and then you have combat, where you're actually moving around a lot, so it's not just this, which gets straining. You see where I'm going with this? This is all just theories, but the fact remains, it never bothered me, and hey, props to that, I'm not sure how they manage that. Let's talk about the difficulty a bit. Now, this game is actually surprisingly anti-grindy, uh, as weird as that sounds. The reason I mention that, it's, it's got... It, I mentioned the difficulty earlier, but like I said, it is proper difficulty. It is possible to just plain old out-level stuff. Even though they will still be outmaneuvering you and dodging you and doing all sorts of fun stuff, you can just out-level them and just kind of dinosaur your way through it, you know? I don't re- recommend that personally, but it is possible it's on the table. But what I mean by the the anti-grind thing is if you're level 30, and by the way, the level cap is 99 or 100, I actually, don't remember, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you're level 30, you're a good level to beat the game, or any one of the three games. If you're level 35, you're pretty overpowered. You see where I'm going with this? If you want to do the optional boss, 40 is probably good, and if you're 50, you could probably curb stomp him, and you get where I'm going with that. That's pretty low in a game with this high of a level cap. And it's kind of like that because, like I said, it doesn't really need you to grind. If you just play the game, kill everything in your way, and that, and that is kind of important, you do have to fight every fight you come across, but don't go back, don't go looping, don't go grinding, you'll be at a good level to beat the game. So, definitely a good thing on that one. Let's also talk about shot locks. Shot locks is what they call... Well, there's several things that be, could be called limit breaks in this game. I personally think of the shot locks as the limit breaks of this particular game. The way it works is you hold down L and R, and this little targeting reticle cube moves, and you can move it around with the analog, and it'll tar- it'll lock on to everything that's in that targeting range. So you have to have your camera aiming at whatever it is you want to hit, which is kind of a problem on some bosses that move around a lot. <clears throat> Break. But, um... <laughs> So you know, tr- 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 and they have a lock-on cap based on what their level is, and then you do the ability, and usually there's some kind of, you know, quick time event type thing where you have to hit B or do the circle or whatever to do more damage, right? Shot locks are ludicrously overpowered if used properly. They, re- they reload very quickly. It takes very little time and effort to get them. You generally only have one per boss fight unless you use items. But they hit for a lot, and you're invulnerable while it's actually going off. You're not invulnerable while targeting. That's important, by the way. But I just mention it because it's going to sound kind of funny. This time through playing the game is the first time I really used shot locks. And I really only did it on Ventus and Aqua. I didn't even remember on Terra. It was like at the end of the game, and I was like, oh yeah, I just got shot. I have shot locks, right? I should use these. Uh, okay, that was awesome. And then I go back to playing the game, and then I started using it on the next few playthroughs. But one other thing I want to talk about with regards to that is finishers. Now, there's actually kind of a a two-style thing here. There's actually command styles and finishers, which for all intents and purposes are the same thing categorically speaking, from a gameplay perspective. The way it works is this. While you're doing stuff, attacking, magic, using items, whatever, there's a little bar over your command bar over here, right? And it's filling. Now, if you, for example, use some fire spells while you're filling this and then attack someone, and it fills up and you have Firestorm unlocked, You'll go into the command style of Firestorm, where you gain basically new abilities. Well, not very many, but you do gain some, and you could use those to increase your ability. And once you fill the bar again, you get a big boom attack, right? Now, you'll be using these constantly. Understanding how to activate those and how to use them is very key to really getting the most out of your experience. And I don't just mean difficulty wise. I honestly recommend you try them all out, because they're cool. <laughs> I mean this. I've talked many times about Kingdom Hearts and the cool factor. These finishing command style things are really cool, and I recommend you try them all out. Now, like I said, there's also finishing moves. That's a little bit different. Those are also leveled. Everything in this game is leveled. Finishers are leveled. Shotlocks are leveled. Command styles are leveled. You are leveled. Your, your abilities are, are on the command bar are leveled. Point being... The com- <laughs> your arena level is leveled. Point being... When you do basically, when you don't activate a command style and the bar fills, rather than you switching forms and getting, you know, fire thing or awesome light death beam or whatever, I don't think that's the official name, instead what happens is you do a finishing move. Now, most of these finishing moves are very useful, and they're probably what you're going to see about 50% of the time, unless you're intentionally trying for command styles. And if you're just flat meleeing, I guarantee you that's what you're going to see, but those, two can be used strategically to great use. Aqua's is probably my favorite example of that. It's basically a cone attack that hits straight up. So it has a very small radius around here, but it hits up quite a ways. And it makes you invulnerable while you're doing it, so it's actually a great way to dodge attacks that would otherwise hurt like hell or even kill you. So that's always nice. Before I go into the next and final section here, I want to talk about something that is probably my favorite aspect about the gameplay of this game, and that is command bars and the thing related to that. RPGs ever since, well, hell, I don't even know how long, but at the very least since Final Fantasy 1 have given you the ability to customize your character. Most people refer to this as alternate leveling paths. The basic reality of how this comes out is there's your level. As you level, your stats go up, right? Anything else is is up for grabs, depending on the RPG. But what a lot of RPGs do, again, since like I'd say Final Fantasy three is probably a good example where that really started, or five to where it really took off the ground, is you level, and then you have this other thing over here totally unrelated to your level, or at least at the most tangentially unrelated which allows you to do other things to customize your character. I've talked about this before when I did all my Final Fantasy videos, about how the more customization you are given, the easier game tends to be. FF7 being a great example of that. FF10 is another good one. Not necessarily a downside. I love customization. And in fact, the Materia system is probably my third or second favorite customization system ever. But my first, at least so far, is probably this one. Let me talk about how it works, Okay. In this game, you can always attack, you can always go whoosh, and you know, there's things that can modify how many combos you have and your finishers and all the all that stuff, I already talked about that lad. In order to use any ability which is activated by the triangle button, you have to fill out your command bar. You know, you start out with like three or four slots, it's not many, and you go get up to eight by the end of the game. So eight slots to work with. Now very, very, very powerful abilities use two slots, but those are pretty much, those are all end game, so let's not worry about that, okay? So eight abilities you can slot in here, right? Now let's discuss what abilities can be. Uh, a special attack can be, like Stun Edge, which will hit at someone and then stun them, or Poison Edge, or uh, Barrier Surge, you know, all these things are, can be in there. You can put something in there that is magic related, like Fire, or Phyra, fire or Phyraga, or Cura, or, you know, whatever. You can put items in there. Now items are kind of weird, because they, each time you use it, it basically uses up one of your item. Now it'll still be there, And the reload time is much quicker than, say, for example, heal spells. But it uses up your inventory, and that's the trade-off. And so forth and so on. That's awesome. Being able to fully deck out your loadout to whatever it is you want, for the moment, or for the boss, or whatever, just for fun, is an awesome system. But then it gets more awesome because of the other thing I just mentioned. Melding. The way this works, they call it melding, it's basically a form of crafting. I'm going to give you some direct examples. If you have been leveling fire and another fire in your thing, and they both level to max, now it doesn't always have to be max, but generally you want to level them to max, especially because it gives you uh, whatever ability was attached to them, which I haven't even covered yet. We'll get to that in just a moment. So you got these two fires, they're maxed, you can meld them together. Now, the way melding works is you pick two abilities and one crystal. Now, I mentioned this earlier with Stop, Magnet, and Abounding Crystal. The two abilities will form a new ability. This is totally separate of this. Okay, these two. There's there's so many combinations that exist, and there's charts out there which I recommend you use if you're interested in really exploring this. Two, so many combinations that exist, and there's a button that'll show you. You know, these abilities you have can be melded, so it won't. You know, you can't lose abilities. You can't dead end. In other words, which is good. So you combine combine these two fires, and those will make Fira. They will always make fira. This thing is the random thing. You get crystals throughout the game, from drops, from chests, from mini games, all over the place, right? You can't buy them, though, at least not that I'm aware. Um, what these crystals do is they will add a modifier based on what type of recipe this is. So, for example, if I used fire and fire with a shimmering crystal because I can tell you this off the top of my head, what you would get is a new ability attached to this. So you have Phyra, and over here to the side it will say Fire Boost. In other words, it will boost your fire damage as long as you have that equipped. Here's the fun part. Once you have fully leveled Firea, that ability becomes yours permanently. And that's how you max out all of those things. And there's, you know, boosting elemental damage, protecting from elemental damage, more uh, haste, you know, reloading the commands faster, increased health, increased base stats, you know, all sorts of fun things like that. And, of course, X-Blocker, which is the one I mentioned earlier. All of this means a colossal amount of customization. Truly, it's huge. And it's relatively easy, and it's relatively simple, and it's also kind of self-fulfilling in its own way, because, here's the fun part, every time you discover a new command, with some exceptions, now it becomes available for sale at the Moogle shop, because Moogles are awesome. Why is that interesting? Well, see, I know some people who were complaining about this, because they just didn't have the money for anything. So I told them, go buy four fires, just plain fires, and run around for a bit and level them up to Firaga. Go ahead and gain the abilities while you're going. Why not? Now sell the Firaga. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. In general, as long as you are selling your abilities, especially the ones you know you're not going to use, or leveling a few just for the sake of selling, you will have a huge source of money to keep throwing at these and do whatever you want with them. So you can basically customize however you want to. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) Now, there's something I've alluded at a few times. Uh, Some of you who have not played this game may not realize this. Birth by Sleep is one game. But you play it three times. Well, three in like, 0.1 times. The way it works is there are three main characters. Terra, Ventus, and Aqua, okay? Each of those three has a separate storyline, but it's not completely separate. There's actually a feature in-game which is really useful, which will show you the timeline and the point at which certain events will happen in each of the three paths. Because if you underst- if you'll forgive me for putting this kind of crudely, It is one story, but three completely different paths and perspectives on it. You understand? Now, in some cases, there is repetition. There's a few cutscenes that play out completely the same through the three playthroughs. I was actually a little bit disappointed about that. But, for the most part, the other 85-90% of the content is new, different, and related to the other two. There is a catch here. If you play Birth by Sleep over a long period of time, which I don't recommend at all, it's not even that long of a game, it's like a 30-hour game at most, and that's doing side stuff. It's very possible to forget things from earlier playthroughs, from earlier paths. You know, if you played Venterra first and put the game down for two months and then play Ventus, you might not remember everything and might not understand the significance of certain events. But if you play it one-to-one-to-one... it's awesome <laughs> it is an excellent way of doing a particular type of continuity I like it's very much showing your work if you know what I mean now the other interesting thing about this is the play style of the play style of the three characters is not completely different this isn't like Dissidia but it is different there is distinctions between the three when the three start off they're pretty much the same. And then they get to about a midway point, and then they're pretty different in overall feel and style. And then you get to the end game. Now, one of the things that really distinguishes the three is not only their stat growth, but their abilities. Their shot locks, their finishing commands, their, uh, command styles, and of course the variabilities that they can get and meld are different depending on the character. Some things only Aqua can meld, some things only Terra can meld, etc., etc. You get where I'm going with this. So it makes for a different play experience each time. Terra, for example, he is power. Raw, just doom power. He's he's easily the easiest of the three, because he can just burn his way through just about anything. And he only had two fights in the whole game that really gave me a challenge. Ironically, the first and the last boss, respectively. No, I'm not kidding. Um, But one of the other things interesting about Terra is he learns a lot of abilities that really help him to do... Damage when he shouldn't be, if you know what I mean. It's it's hard to explain without really going into detail, and I don't want to do too much of that. This is already going to be a huge video with how many... I'm, like, this far into my notes. <laughs> I just have... Anyways, point being, Terra is raw strength and power, right? Then we have Ventus. Now, Ventus is speed, agility, a bit of magic, and a lot of multiple hits kind of things. You know, rather than hitting once for... He'll hit you three times for and he has a great deal of maneuverability, it's generally very easy to dodge attacks with him, and he's got some magic power. Then we've got Aqua. I've actually heard a lot of people describe Aqua as the mage of the trio, you know, warrior, rogue, mage, respectively. And while that is certainly true, I kind of disagree, and I'm going to explain why. Aqua is the glass cannon. Now, that certainly sounds like a mage, but what I mean by that is she is just as good with her blade as she is with her spells. And her, 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 her attacks do not do less damage. Well, in some cases, they do less. But for the most part, her attacks and her even her unique abilities, like uh, Time splice or whatever it is. Not Time splice that's not the one. Uh, final Hour, something like that. God, I just played this. Anyways, even her melee attacks, which are unique to her, I might add, are not weak. And neither are her spells, which are unique to her. Triple Firaga, anyone? Or how about Thundaga Shot? I particularly like that one. My point here is that Aqua is not a mage. She's what I like to call an Omni-Mage. For those of you who have not heard me use that, that expression before, when you play Oblivion, or Morrowind, or Fallout for that matter, you can specialize in something, or you can specialize in everything. All it takes is time and knowing what you're doing. The difference here is Virtually every RPG under the sun that has some kind of customization, or variants, or classes, or whatever, has the Red Mage equivalent. The master of none, but adept at all kind of a thing, you know? The jack-of-all-trades situation. An Omni-Mage is different because an Omni-Mage is a master of all. Aqua is a master of magic. Aqua is a master of attack. Aqua is a master of dodging. She even has two separate abilities to allow her to do damage while moving. She's good at everything. The one catch with Aqua is if you do... Her HP is pathetically small. Even at like 37 or whatever it is I ended up... I, I was really hugely overleveling her. Her health bar... You know how Kingdom Hearts does this thing? Her health bar was like this. Which is pathetic because Terra's was like over here. She has no health. And bosses hurt. So that's why I call her the Glass Cannon Omni-Mage. So I guess she's not bad as dead. Everything. But you get where I'm going with that. Now, let's go ahead and talk about the non spoiler stuff, shall we? The triple storytelling that I just mentioned in brief is generally awesome, for the reasons I mentioned, but it's also supposed to be done in a given order. The intended order is the order of difficulty, Terra, Ventus, Aqua. And I agree, that is the order, if anybody asks me, I say that's the order you should play the games in. But, this is the cool part. You don't have to. I personally think you get the most enjoyment playing the games in that order, or playing the three uh, scenarios in that order, but it doesn't actually change anything per se, and you can still get all the pieces just in a slightly different order if you play them differently. I know some people who have played Aqua first, and then switched over to Ventus and ended with Terra, and, and you know there's all sorts of different combos there. Actually, there's only like five, but you get the point. There are a few different combos you can do as far as order here. And I think that's fine. And I think that's indicative of the amount of effort and time that went into the storytelling of this to make it so that these three paths could be played in any order and still enjoyed fully. The only catch, if you could even call this a catch, is you really do have to play all three scenarios. I do know a few people who have felt, for lack of a better term cheated, because they had to play the game three times, you know. You know, they'd play through one scenario, finish it in like seven hours, and be like, well, this is dumb. It was a seven-hour game. I was like, well, did you play as the other two? No, why would I want to play the same game as the other two? No, play as the other two. <laughs> and some people, are, though, even ignoring ignorance, just don't want to do that. And I can I can respect that. But it is something that's worth mentioning. There's only three more points I have before I get to spoilers, okay? Point one. Terra. Terra is fascinating to me. And that's why we're going to talk about him second. <laughs> Ventus. Let's we'll talk about him first. Ventus is what I like to call the first aspect of the child. Okay, Ventus is traditionally childish. In a good way. He is innocent. He is naive. He is open, uh, open, honest, that kind of a thing. He, he's actually very much like Sora, if you really think about it. Once, except in Kingdom Hearts 2, because we all hate Sora in Kingdom Hearts 2 don't deny it, but he portrays that general innocence very well. The actor does a great job of the fact, especially since Roxas is kind of not like that. Sorry. <laughs> but he very much tries to emulate his brother, his elder brother, Terra. I know they're not actually related, but he, there's obvious a very... Connect, very non-blood familial tie between all three of these people, and especially between Ventus and Terra. And Ventus often tries to emulate Terra, tries to be strong like him, be brave like him, to go against, you know, tradition like him, all these kind of things, because he looks up to him, because he has looked up to him for forever. There's a cutscene where Terra bequeaths, he, he fakes the, uh, the keyblade ceremony which I'll which I'll be talking about at length later to give you know give a wooden carved keyblade that was his to Ventus now I know this sounds kind of weird but it's actually a really touching scene and it gets across the point that Terra and Ventus's connection is that strong and that's how much Ventus cares about Terra and vice versa we'll talk about that more later too in many ways it's actually ironic because Ventus's emulation of Terra really shows the other side of his nature. I can't talk about that yet, but we'll get to that in spoiler section. Let's talk about Terra. Terra is the other side of the child aspect. Now, this is kind of funny, because Terra is certainly much older. In fact, I believe he is the oldest of the three. But he is very much like Ventus in his own way, in his naivete. He just approaches it differently. He approaches it with headstrong, with aggression, you know, he'll he'll approach something with, like, the desire to do something about whatever it is that's there, very much like the dark side, I mean, I'm sorry, but like the darkness, excuse me, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'll be talking about that in a bit, too, it's, he is very focused character, but because of his innocence, because of his culpability, I guess is the word I want to go for, he gets manipulated constantly. And he never really learns from it. He keeps thinking, well, next time I will be stronger, next time I will be better. But then he you know, he, he gets tricked again, and again, and again, and so forth, and so on. I don't think this is really spoilers, but I think it's telling that the first person who tricks him is Maleficent. And that he actually forges a D-link with her. The other thing I want to say about Terra is that he is definitely the kind of person who is still a child at heart. But tries very hard to pretend he isn't. It's almost a shame, really. He tries so hard to be the adult. And I feel like a lot of that is because of how protective he feels about Ventus. And how much shame he feels over how much darkness is in him. And I blame all of that on Ericus. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about Aqua. I have a note here that literally says Aqua, the actual adult. She is the actual adult of the trio. She is the only, she is actually younger than Aqua, or excuse me, younger than Terra, but she actually behaves like an adult in just about every situation. I have a couple of notes here specifically: uh, the way she deals with Scrooge, the way she deals with Minnie, the way she deals with the Madam Councilwoman. All of these things show that she knows how to approach a situation with her head and with her respect. And with actually thinking her way through a situation, rather than being headstrong or manipulated, or just, yay, hi! No, she thinks her way through situations, and she shows this on many occasions, pretty much constantly, actually. She's also the only one who really demonstrates the connection that is the Kingdom Hearts series' theme, the whole series, and that is the Bonds of Fellowship. I've talked about this before with regards to FF6, which is a game that very much strongly emphasized that as basically its primary point, but the whole Kingdom Hearts series emphasizes that as its point. The connections between people are themselves powerful and a source of power, and can be used in many different ways and for many different things. Aqua is a great example of that in a very epic fashion uh, towards the end of the game, but she does this pretty much constantly. You can also tell that Aqua is someone who feels very responsible for the situation and feels like it's unfair, I feel. This is my opinion. I feel like she feels it's unfair. Feel, 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 feel. That she is basically the one who has to take responsibility because no one else is. And she is constantly trying to deal with that pressure, that strain, and trying to hold true to her belief in the others. And I'll talk about that more later, too. She's probably the only one who actually also shows a belief in destiny or fate. And she's also probably the only one who really thinks to the future, too. Ventus is just following Terra around and dealing with Venetus. Terra is trying to deal with the darkness and learn what the hell is going on with Xehanort. But Aqua... There's a scene that really struck with me. It's a scene where she is talking about everything that is to come. It's one of the very last scenes of her storyline on Destiny Islands. And she talks about all the horrible things that are going to come and all the terrible events that are going to happen. And she knows it is because she knows how bad things are getting. Because she's thinking ahead. (laughs) And it's actually kind of a sad scene because the word choice, the intention, the impression there is very much clearly, will we be able to withstand it? Because she believes that they will actually be there To withstand it. Alright. You know what time it is. (laughs) Yeah. From now on, spoiler alert. Uh, Sorry uh, about the noise. It was suggested by PAX. Um, But it seems really appropriate, all things considered. It's a really good way to get across the point that, hey, from now on, spoilers. So, from now on, spoilers. Spoilers. I don't really have a better way place to mention this in, in structure of what I'm going to be talking about next. Let's move down my notes here. But God, I have so many notes on this game. A lot of abilities, the abilities you learn, the, the commands and the magic and all that fun stuff, are actually very similar between uh, Chain of Memories and Birth by Sleep. Now, I feel that was done deliberately, not just because reusing abilities is neat, keen and neat and cool, but because there is a very strong connection between Chain of Memories and Birth by Sleep. The connection of Oblivion Castle. For those of you who don't know, uh, you know I already gave the spoiler warning. Aqua is the one who basically rebuilt. Uh, I don't actually remember the name of the world into Oblivion Castle because it, that was actually the secret that was built into it that the Keyblade Masters knew. That's why they trained there. It's because that was the dividing point in between light and dark. It was in. It was effectively in the no, in-between realm for all intents and purposes. So, yeah, I just thought I'd mention that here. One of the things I like is that even before the world map is filled out, there is a swirling energy in this one spot right over here. Now, there's two things I have to talk about. This one—that's where Destiny Islands is. When you finally get there, just about every character goes there. And actually, did Ventus go there? I don't actually remember. And that's—it's exactly in the middle of that spot, right where that swirl is. All the other energy things in the background are just kind of clouds hovering, but this is very clearly a swirl. It's the only one too. You don't do something like that on accident. So my question is... Here's here's the second theory, really. Well, uh, this is still part of the first theory, but... What is the significance of Destiny Islands? Now, we know some of the significance of it. Xehanort came from there. Sora came from there. Riku came from there. Ventus... We don't actually know where Ventus came from, but we know Ventus stayed on uh, Destiny Islands for a little period of time. A lot of things have happened in that place... What is the true significance of that place, if there is any? Or is it simply the place where all these characters have from, and therefore has significance to them, and ergo, significance to us? The other thing, though, every world throughout all the Kingdom Hearts series always has an icon, and on the map, if there is a map, some kind of little, you know, graphic for it. Birth by Sleep is no exception. The only real exception is Destiny Islands. It just has a sphere of light. Why is that? This is tied into a theory I will not talk about till pretty much the end of my thing here, but I just want this thought to percolate in the back of your mind. The thought that Destiny Island is a sphere of light amongst a swirl of energy in in the greater in the dimension, in the realm of light. Think about that. I like how one of the things that Aqua learns right off the bat in Cinderella's world is that too much light ...can be a bad thing just as much as too much darkness can. Now, Aqua's a pretty big person who's, a, who's an advocate of the light. Of course she is. She's been raised by Ericus, Or taught by Ericus at least. However, one of the other things I le- like about this is Aqua is also one of the people who understands that concept, probably showing that better than anyone else in the entire series, with two exceptions. We'll talk about that later. Because she understands that simply approaching too much uh, all this darkness with too much light is just going to make more darkness. Or just going to make the situation worse, or whatever. It's going to turn out bad one way or the other. And I like the fact that she actually acknowledges that and understands that to some extent or another. It also shows that Aqua is willing to do something other than walk into a situation and fight. And I think that was an important thing to put right off the bat here. Terra walked into a situation and fought. Ventus talked into a situation, bumbled his way through it, and then fought. went into a situation, and tried to work out a situation. Tried to work through it and you know, tried to find an alternate path in order to achieve her goals, and then was forced to fight. And you understand the difference between these perspectives, right? And it really speaks to their characters, I think. One of the other things I want to talk about with regards to Cinderella world, though, is Jacques, because Jacques is awesome. For those of you who don't even remember. Jacques was the mouse who spoke semi-coherent English back in Cinderella in the Disney version. Now, one of the things I like about this is, is, I don't know what it's like in Japanese, but in the English localization, they do a phenomenal job of him. The subtitles are generally pretty understandable. His language, slightly less so, but they they get it spot on, you know what I mean? It is it is basically a uh, a, a lingo, a speak that he's, he's talking in, and... The subtitles are there in case you can't pick it up, but the flavor of it is still there in his dialogue. You understand where I'm going with this? It was just a nice touch. It's kind of a little thing, but I like that they kept it that way. And I really like Jock, in general, but especially in this game. One of the things I want to comment, too, is it's satisfying that Aqua's introduction to Unversed, (laughs) which are uh, basically negative emotions being manifested by darkness, to summarize their significance, uh ignoring the other thing, of course, which is their can tie to Venitas. The unversed being introduced to Aqua Storyline by Lady Tremaine probably is one of the bit more sense making things I could come up with. And the reason why is because while they're certainly more evil, more powerful, more charismatic, more interesting, better, funner, prettier <laughs> smarter <laughs> better in every way, <laughs> villains throughout Disney what Tremaine has that most of them don't, and this is kind of funny when you think about it, is negative emotions. How many characters in Disneyverse are that spiteful, are just that plain, that screwed up in the head, that even though it profits them nothing, they will still go out of their way, still excise themselves in order to hurt you, because screw you that's Lady Tremaine in a nutshell. And I've just got to say, forgive me, it was incredibly satisfying watching her burn to death at the hands of the very thing she unleashed. A little ham-handed way of getting across the point, but extremely satisfying. She deserved it, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Maleficent. Maleficent. I actually only really have one section to talk about Maleficent, if I'm not mistaken. And that is right here. Maleficent is very interesting in this game for two reasons. One, it's pretty clear she's basically at the height... or Well, no. If you were to consider her overall height of power to be like this... And over here is Kingdom Hearts 2. And right about here is Kingdom Hearts 1. She's definitely on the downswing. And this is a period we don't see... But right about here is where she is at in in Birth by Sleep. And I know this is like a 10-year gap, so bear with me, this is a 10-year gap. But the point is, you can see the woman who is going to become the major threat. It is no surprise to me, I must say, that they decided to pick Maleficent to be the face for the Disney villains. They could have picked just about anybody for that, really. There are other villains who have arguably done more, been more, more threatening, that kind of thing. Jafar is just one that comes off to mind immediately. But Maleficent has always been distinct, even though she basically, when you really boil down to it, didn't really do much in Sleeping Beauty. Her presence, her appearance, her charisma, for lack of a better term, really makes her a classical villain in the style I like to use, like Golbez, for example, is a very classical villain. And she personifies that nicely. and So it's no surprise to me that they picked her to be the face for the Disney villains. And one of the reasons she has had such a major role in three of the games that I'm aware of... You could argue two more, but we're not going to get into that. The three major games she definitely had a role in, and this is one of them. One of the other interesting things to me is she shows clearly that she still has a great deal of ignorance about what's going on. and And it will lead to her downfall eventually. We see that in the other games. But... She's also very capable of working with the situation as it evolves around her. For that matter, I'd just like to point out that the only one of the three characters who doesn't fall for maleficence, deceptions, or manipulations is Aqua, which doesn't really surprise me that much. I'm going to go ahead and pause here for a moment because I've got a thing to talk about in a bit here. But I'd just like to add that Aqua is one of my favorite characters in general and she is my favorite character in kingdom hearts the in in the series obviously one of the reasons she is is because she has a brain one of them is because she is strong one of them is because the fact that she's female is basically irrelevant let me back up and explain what i mean here i've always said that I, I like it when a strong female protagonist exists, and I've always believed that one of the best ways to get that across is to have someone who isn't actually written as a female. I don't want to get too preachy here, I really don't, but I just want to mention this on the side, because I think this was a good example of this being done right. Give me just one moment. You see, I can come up with three examples right off the top of my head, and i got to look up one of their names, because I can never think of it. of, of strong female characters, and all of them share the same concept. What is her name? Vanson. Okay, so, Aqua from Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep, Samus from Metroid, no, Other M doesn't exist, and Shane Vanson from Space Above and Beyond. For those of you who know who that is, I really don't feel like I have to say anything else. And I don't really want to get off on a tangent here. But my point here is, Aqua is written as a strong protagonist who is female. Not a female strong protagonist. You understand the difference? The emphasis is clearly on the protagonist, the the hero, the character. And the fact that they are female is not irrelevant, because it shouldn't be. But it's not dominant, because it shouldn't be. You understand here? This is just my opinion, of course, but I think they did an excellent job with it. In fact, the fact that she's female only really came up um, three times, I think, total, two of which were jokes, Hades and uh, Phil, Phil, respectively. And the last time, well, it was kind of a joke, too, but it was kind of a sweet joke, and that was with Zack. You'll notice all three of these are in Hercules' world, by the way. I think that's the only time her being female was even acknowledged, other than, you know, her instead of him. So very well done on that part. And the voice actress in the English version, I think, did a really good job across of getting across the character. Just thought I'd comment about that. So, I've talked before in the Kingdom Hearts series about how I feel the Disney world should be used in service of the greater story arc, or characterization, or both. And I feel how in Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2... And, you know, that, that, that was lacking in several categories. Birth by Sleep is one of the things where I feel that it was never lacking. Every Disney World served the purposes of plot, character, or both. Every single one of them. To some extent or another, because it does variable. For example, the Disney World, eh, that doesn't advance much, we'll be honest about ourselves. It does establish Pete and Maleficent's relationship. It does establish a little bit about Minnie, and we learn a little bit more about the characters through their interactions there. But even that still did have some service to the overall setting. And the Disney World is pretty short and kind of just a break, anyways, in the middle of the game. So shrug. One of the themes that really goes through in the three runs is Terra's run is really about two things, if I were to summarize it. Light versus dark, which is the obvious one, uh, ter- himself being drawn towards darkness, and yet being taught that darkness is wrong, and therefore trying to aspire to the light, and the contrast and combination of the two throughout his storyline, and of course the feeling of helplessness. Throughout Terra's storyline, we get feelings, impressions, ideas, expositions, whatever, of people, including Terra himself, who basically are helpless, who can't do anything about the situation they're in or the circumstances or whatever. And that's its own particular type of despair. And I know they did that on purpose because of how Terra's story ends. I'm pretty sure I didn't make a note anywhere else about this, let's talk about this here really quick. The Lingering Sentiment. Terra's story ends with Terra losing. He becomes absorbed. Well, his body becomes taken over, and Xehanort's heart is placed in him so that Xehanort can take his body, have a young, you know, strong body to continue his plans and do his thing, right? All of that makes sense, because Terra can't, is, is manipulatable. He's naive. He charges right ahead to action. And all of that was what Xehanort used to manipulate him, but it did backfire twice, actually. I'll talk about the other time later, because I'm going to talk about that in its own section. But right here, it backfired once, because Terra is a person of action. He is a person who does. He is aggressive. He is strong. And his powerful hate and rage of Xehanort and what he had done to him and his friends was so powerful... That his armor got up, because his armor had been imbued with all of that. And then in the last battle of the game, you play Terra's armor, fighting Xehanort in Terra's body. Or Terranort, as he is most often referred to. Or Terra Xehanort, if you want the full name. It's an awesome fight, and as I mentioned, it's one of the the only two fights that really gave me a hard time on Terra. It was brutal, it was wonderful. One of my favorite songs of all time is playing during it, and it's incredibly pertinent to the overall story. I'll talk about that a little bit more later with regards to Xehanort, so let's move on. Ventus. Ventus's storyline is basically all about friendship. This is actually kind of ironic, considering Ventus's condition... Which we'll talk about more later. I know I keep saying that. It's true. But one of the things that we see most often in Ventus is he is constantly trying to make connections with people. Trying to be friends with everybody. One of the most common phrases he says is, Hi, I'm Ventus, but my friends call me Ven. Now that sounds like an innocious line, but if you really think about it, what he is saying is that he is giving sort of a passive, you know, tentative permission to you to be, call him, to call him Ven, which thereby clarifies you as his friend. It's kind of a passive-aggressive thing in its own right, but it's indicative of his personality and his outset, that he just basically gets along with people. He wants to be friends with all these people. And I feel like it's worth pointing out that he makes a lot of connections with a lot of people, and then in Kingdom Hearts 1, Sora comes through and just kind of gets along with them instantly and without effort. Hmm... It's almost as though there was already a connection there. I'll talk more about that later, too. I've already mentioned that one, actually. Let's talk about Aqua real quick. Her idiom, as she's going through the Disney stories, is she is all about trying to figure out what's going on, and more importantly, what to do about it. Terra and Ventus were both pretty crucial parts of Xehanort's plots. Plots, multiple. Aqua was completely incidental. To, t- to Xehanort's plots. If she had died, it wouldn't have mattered, basically, to him. Or to Venitas, for that matter. And yet, it's funny because Aqua is not only the smartest and the strongest, she is the actual one who derails his plots. Although, as we learn, that's not necessarily a good thing, because the way she does it paved the way for, well, for... Zemnus for Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness for all the events of Kingdom Hearts 1 and Recom and 358 and Kingdom Hearts 2. So we, obviously the situation was just broken horribly, but at least she managed to do something. Terra and Ventus both basically just managed to kind of sort of stop him, kind of? Not really? I will give credit to Ventus, though. We'll talk about that more later when we talk about Vanitas. Let's keep going with the Disney worlds. I've only got a couple more to go through here. Radiant Garden. It was nice to finally see Radiant Garden, because we get the term Radiant Garden in Kingdom Hearts 2. But this is it in its prime. Not a place that's still being rebuilt, not a place that still has scars of the darkness or of hollow bastion. Instead, it is the Paradise World. But one of the things I really like about Radiant Garden, and this is a subtle thing, and I may be reading too much into this one, I'm not sure is that it is a very much a combination a mix of hard steampunk machinery technology you know harsh design and angular and at the same time natural there are trees and flowers and there's overgrowth and there's a very there's a lot of water there's a great deal of a flowing nature to the architecture and not only is that interesting in its own right because that kind of thing can only exist in a truly advanced society but on top, which, which speaks to Ansem the Wise, you know, in general, and the way things were beforehand, but it also speaks to something else, I think. Because all that, that that's, that's proven. This is the part I feel like I might be reading too much into it. I feel like that's an analog between light and darkness. I feel like that is the thing. I've talked about this before, Kingdom Hearts 2 especially. One of the other big themes about Kingdom Hearts, the series is the same thing the Star Wars series as a whole took right about the time KOTOR came out. The dark side is not automatically bad, the light side is not automatically good, and it is a proper usage of both that really is the proper path. And in this series, that's a huge deal. And so in Radiant Garden, we see a world that is part darkness and part light, and is working with the two without issue simultaneously to create a greater whole. Excuse me, I'll be talking about that theory a little bit more in a bit when I get to my Xehanort section. Um, One of the other things I want to mention about this is Scrooge is awesome. Um, I really don't have anything else to add to that. Scrooge McDuck is incredible. He does a really good job of it. We also get a good deal of a hint that several people, in addition to Mickey and the Keyblade Masters and whatnot, can travel between the worlds because Scrooge himself is mentioned as having come from the Disney Town and yet is in Radiant Garden. It is theorized that, given how advanced they were, the people of Radiant Garden themselves had the ability to travel between worlds, and it is extremely likely that that might be what originally called the attention of certain heartless to that area. Just a theory. <sighs> I do mean originally, originally. Obviously, the experiments on the hearts really drew them in. But what? But you get where I'm going with this, you know? It was, it was, it was the hey, what's that over there? And then the experiment in hearts like, oh, okay. The other thing I want to mention is I liked Kyrie's whole section there. Now, obviously the Kyrie section was probably one of the most obvious things they did in this game because especially for a game with a lot of subtleties, Kyrie just shows up and you save her and then she talks about the story, you know, the legend about what happened before during the Keyblade War, the one event we still don't know exactly what happened during, not really. Okay, I'm with that. But there is one other aspect to this that I really thought was cool. Number one, Kyrie inheriting the Keyblade capacity from, from Aqua accidentally. I find myself wondering how accidental that actually was. And I know that sounds weird, because I don't think Aqua did it on purpose. I think what Kyrie did was instinctively reached out in a way that she knew would protect her. And that, as a child of the Light a pure princess of heart, that was the only thing she could understand. This will protect me. I think ter- uh, Kyrie is the one who initiated that. I mean, I know obviously she did because she touched it, but you get where I'm going with this, right? I think Kyrie is the one who actually initiated that ceremony in that brief flash in order to gain that power for the future to protect her should she need it. Yes, I know this was retconned in, but this does make sense to me, sense to me nonetheless. On top of that, I also feel like the obvious connection, eh. we know that in the future, Kyrie will basically, without volition, flee across the dimensions of worlds, from, Holo, from what at that point will be Bastion towards Destiny Islands. We also know that the reason for that is because Aqua specifically gave her a protection that will send her to someone who will take care of her. I also find it very interesting that the one who was chosen to protect her is the Sora Ventus person. Sora Ventus? Ventus hmm. Anyways, Sora and Riku, of course. I mention this as interesting because Aqua hasn't met these two yet, although, if you want to pull it technically, she has met one of them. But Aqua's connections to both Sora and Riku, well, mostly Sora, are not insubstantial even at this point. But again, that's a discussion for later. Let's talk about the Disney Town. I already talked about it in brief. It's kind of a brief little thing. You get the racing minigame and, you know, the helping stuff around town thing. Two comments on this. Number one, I really felt bad for Pete during most of this section. It's really a credit to Jim Cummings' portrayal of the character that he actually manages to add a great deal of flavor and charisma or otherwise likability to a character that basically isn't. It was basically just a schlock, you know? And... As he's running around as Captain Justice, trying to be like, yes, work for me. And yes, I know, there's an inside joke with his costume. I get it. You know, Captain Justice. I actually felt kind of bad for him. Especially because I felt like as he was doing that, granted he was doing it for the wrong reasons, but most of the other Disney Town characters were just being jerks to him. And I do mean jerks in a way that I would feel is completely rude and unforgivable, almost unforgivable, I shouldn't say unforgivable, but you know, it's, it's certainly something that's worth sneering at. And yet he keeps doing it for the wrong reasons. And so I just felt like I had a great deal of sympathy for Pete up to the end there. Now, this was simultaneously for me kind of a crowning moment of yes and no within the space of a few seconds of each other, because here's how it works out. Pete, it is revealed to Pete that several people voted for him. Despite everything, despite the fact that he was only doing it for a prize, which was just ice cream, by the way, for, you know, spoiler alert. He was still, he still got a few votes from people. And that said something. Minnie herself said it. You know, some people believed in you, even though you were doing this for the wrong reasons. Some people put their faith in you. And in that moment, I actually was just like, oh, that's awesome. And then there's a pause, and then Pete says, big deal, what does that matter to me? And the way he phrases it was so deliberate, and I feel like this is why Minnie got as upset as she did. Because that is basically a betrayal, and in a place like Disney Town, that's probably the worst kind of betrayal that you're going to see around there. You're not going to see real betrayal in a place like that. That's as bad as it gets. And it's no surprise to me that she decided to banish Pete to the lanes between as a result of that fact. As a side note, one of the things I find amusing is that Maleficent deliberately, who, who can use the corridors of darkness already, deliberately goes out to save save. Pete from the situation, basically just to get a stoolie, someone she can boss around. I think she did it on purpose with him specifically because she knew he would be someone who would never threaten her superiority, and that's important. He would never be someone who would be, think himself better than her, or, well, I, I guess that's not about quite true, but who would never actually be able to be better than her. She would always be the head of the situation. You follow? Kind of an Emperor Palpatine kind of thing, if you know what I mean. And so... I think that's the first reason why she go after him, but well the main reason why she went after him, but the other important thing I think is that Pete decides to willingly go with her. Yes, I'll I'll you can be my boss as long as you get me out of here. <sighs> for those of you who are paying attention, Minnie said she was only going to put him in there for a little while. I find it ironic that Pete will now spend the next eleven plus years of his life serving Maleficent, basically thanklessly, and getting his life worse and worse as a result of that. Because he didn't want to stay in this little jail cell for a little while. Poor Pete. <sighs> Hercules' section. Now, I just want to mention that Zack's inclusion in this game was great. Granted, the original reason for doing it was not the correct one. The original reason was a game called Crisis Core was still relatively recent, new, And that's the reason. But, you know, popularity wave, right? here's the catch it fits perfectly it fits thematically and it fits literally think about this for a moment zach is there with hercules the hero training hard fighting off the darkness you know all that fun stuff he's he is zach too they got the same voice actor of course my point is he is very zach you know a very ventus kind of a personality almost too childlike despite everything and he's like yeah let's do it woo and then by kingdom hearts one no one has ever heard of him or mentions him, and he, there's no sight of him whatsoever. Sound familiar? On top of that, he interacts with that storyline in in, with just about everyone pretty much the exact same way Cloud does in Kingdom Hearts 1, which was also in Hercules's world, I'd just like to point out. So the whole thing really does fit, both literally from a storytelling perspective and thematically. We don't actually know what happened to Zack. We don't actually ever have to know It's just a very excellent usage of it. It's kind of meta in its own right, but it does fit very well. On top of that, I really like seeing Hercules as the kid. (laughs) I really like the little touches. For example, Zach keeps a lot of Zach's little mannerisms are straight from the thing. The squats, the way he patterns his speech, you know, all that's pretty much straight from uh, Crisis Core. Uh, In addition, as always, it's always great to see Hades in a Kingdom Hearts game. James Woods is amazing. And, as usual, he does a really good job of it. Even though he's a total sleaze to Aqua. I loved it because it was a perfect setup. Because he is just a total, you know, I'm the best, and you're just a girl, and go fight, go, go ask for help. And then Aqua fights him and his Colossus by herself. And I don't know about you, but I stomped him and his Colossus. But one other thing which is interesting about this, he actually mentions, and they actually bothered to throw this in, that he needs a real titan in order to do it. Because they actually introduced the thing, which looked a lot like the Ice Titan, as the Ice Colossus. That's another nice little touch, that he didn't actually have the titans yet. You know, because we'll see those in Kingdom Hearts 1, and to a lesser extent in future games, because apparently the Earth Titan is back in Kingdom Hearts 3, for example. But to actually bother to show that this was a weaker creation, and then to acknowledge that in story, it was a nice little touch. Which brings me to my next point, which isn't actually Disney exclusive, but the Hercules world really felt like they did this a lot. There were a lot of little touches throughout this game. I was keeping track for a while. I had to stop. I was just It was just such a huge list. There are so many small little details that are basically just thrown in for flavor, or to expound on something, or to add to something, or to make something make more sense. Birth by Sleep, from the creator's perspective, was done in many ways, specifically to fill all the plot holes and and fulfill just about all the major questions about the series up to this point. This is acknowledged on the part of the creators. But on top of that, I feel like they really put their best into this one, because the tiny little details everywhere really shine through. Let's keep going. Speaking of which, speaking of worlds I really liked, the Lilo and And Stitch world. Except I can't call it that, can I? This is another example of using a Disney world well in the service of the story, because it's not actually on Hawaii. It's on the spaceship. There is no Lilo. There are no... Any of those other characters. There's Stitch, aka Experiment 626, Captain Gontu, the Councilwoman, and Scientist Nutbag McGee. I can't even remember his name. And that's it. Those are the only characters we interact with in all three storylines. But I feel like it was actually to the benefit of the story rather than the detriment number of reasons why. uh First and foremost, again, it shows the difference in their uh, perspective. Terra shows up and is immediately like, oh my god, and and uh, automatically it, thrown in prison because of his actions. Ventus shows up, and the only reason he isn't is because the ship is immediately attacked. Aqua shows up and then is taken to the councilwoman and immediately says, oh, well, I'll go ahead and help you. And is very reasonable with her and talks with her and everything. It's great the way it works out like that. On top of that, I feel like this was something that worked for the usage of the setting. I know this is kind of weird to to explain, but basically what they did was they took a sliver of the setting of Lilo and Stitch and decided to use that for the entirety of this analysis. They generally don't do that. They almost never do that, actually, when they come to these. They usually just take, you know, Aladdin or The Lion King. And in many cases, they just repeat the story of the movie. Right there in the game, right? Uh, Even Cinderella in this one was kind of guilty of that. Not really. The story was sufficiently changed to to make it work, in my opinion. But you get where I'm going with this. This is one of the true exceptions to that, where it's basically just part of the setting reimagined, basically. I think that's the best way I can put it. I hate to use that term because it's so overused. But you get where I'm going with this. Reimagined, specifically to get across this point that the, the differences in their perspective and the idea of that connection reaching even an artificially created monster such as stitch now i know that's the, the point in the movie itself that stitch learns that lesson throughout the course of the movie but at the same time i think that's still in the service of it because it's still keeping with the heart if you'll forgive me for using the word of the movie which itself is also keeping with the heart of the game so very excellent job there also, I finally got to fight Gontu. That was so satisfying. You know, I go through his Terra and I just want to smack him. And I go through his Ventus, and it's just like, ugh. Then I go through his Aqua, and I finally get to beat the crap out of him. And god, I did. I destroyed him. Even by this point, I was level, like, 30-something. And I already had all of my ultimate abilities, because I actually was using the guide, and I started like <laughs> Well, not a guide, I had a chart. There's a chart you can just pull up and say, okay, this, this, and, yeah. I mentioned earlier Ventus's connection with certain characters, and how it's pretty obvious to me that this was done on purpose to show that the conjoined heart of Ventusora or Soraventus, whatever I like Soraventus better, the combined creature that is Soraventus, connecting with these people and forging these connections is why Sora, when he goes through later, so easily and effortlessly joins these connections. While that was obvious in Hercules and in several other worlds as well. Uh, actually, made a note. Where is it? Where is the note? Ah, uh, there it is. Uh, the other really big one is Peter Pan, which is The Last World, basically. I really feel like they did a good job getting across the point that Pan pretty much instantly connected with him. Well, it, uh, and, and I shouldn't say that, because it, it actually took a bit. But then they connected, stayed connected, and trusted him with the treasure, that kind of thing. And obviously the treasure mattered to Ventus. You get where I'm going with this. And then when Aqua comes by and they, they an- analyze it even more and go into it even more, you know, it actually matters. Vanita snapping the Keyblade actually was had some significance by that point because it had been built up through the previous storylines. Story Another excellent example of Aqua storyline going last being a good thing, by the way. One other thing I want to talk about before we move on is their portrayal of Hook. I thought this was a really good portrayal of Hook because he's still menacing. Dangerous, threatening, and a total buffoon who can't be taken seriously. It's a very weird combination, and they somehow pull it off very well. Let's talk about the last world. Scroll down a bit more here. The Keyblade Graveyard. This is something I like to really fawn over uh, as as someone who worked in artistry, design, I've done a bajillion graphics, arts, etc. classes back in school, and I've done that kind of thing professionally and personally ever since in many ways, uh, in directing, too, for video media. When you see a world like that, you can tell just how much detail was put into it. That place has no life. No animals, no plants, no bugs, no wind, nothing. It's just dead. But on top of that, it's not dead dead. It's not gray. It's barren. It's rock. It's not even dirt or sand. It is rock. And it is giant crags of rock. It looks like a place that had, where the very earth has been physically ripped around and moved. And actually, as we learned, that is probably exactly what happened. And on top of that, there are craters. A whole hole, like someone had made a path through a mountain, is missing. You know... All sorts of things, just pointing to the general idea of how devastating this place was. And that's before we see the actual graveyard, where all the Keyblades are. I'm sorry, but even now, that horrifies me. The thousands upon thousands of Keyblades, all embedded there. How many Keyblade wielders fought in that horrifying war? With these simple images, they don't even have to say anything. With just the imagery of this, we understand, we can extrapolate, we can feel just how horrifying the Keyblade War really is. And that's important for two reasons. One is the obvious, to flesh out the setting. But the other is to emphasize why what Xehanort's doing is wrong and something we should try to stop. Because even though, as I'll talk about in a little bit here, he has some good points, he wants to make that happen again. And I'm sorry, but in general, no matter what the resultant, that is horrible. And it really goes to show that the amount of effort they put in. that. I just want to mention one other thing about the Keyblade Graveyard. As we know, all the inversed come back to Vanitas once they're destroyed. And then he can just set off more in the worlds. And, bang, yeah, yeah, yeah. and this is what he does for most of the game. One of the nice touches I like is, as I mentioned, there's no life here. But there are tornadoes. There's one zone which has these little twisters... And they aren't normal twisters, They're, they have flickers of light, and when you get into them you got caught into what is basically a miniature realm of darkness, and in there are Unversed. This makes perfect sense, because these, in my opinion, are the Unversed that ha- are in transit, basically, have been pulled and funneled back into this world from the other worlds, because you defeated them there, and are now here. That's why each torn, uh, Twister has a different selection of Unversed from the different worlds you traverse. Make sense? Just a cool little touch I liked. (sighs) Let's go ahead and talk about Xehanort first. Ultimately, you could say, without hesitation, that Birth by Sleep is Xehanort's story. He doesn't actually have the screen for most of it, but this is truly trying to understand this villain, the villain of the entire Kingdom Hearts series, someone who we didn't even have a name for properly until Kingdom Hearts 2, and even that wasn't actually as accurate as we thought it was. Master Xehanort, as he's usually called to differentiate him from Xehanort, or Terranort, is... First of all, I'd just like to say, he's played by Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy is a pretty good actor, all things considered, and he's a very good voice actor. And I think a lot of the wonderful dynamics of Xehanort are due to the fact that Leonard Nimoy worked with the character and really put himself into the voice. He does a phenomenal job. I couldn't imagine anyone else doing that voice. Really does a spot-on job. Moving along from that, what we see in Xehanort is someone who is very strange in his own right. His own actions... Subtly, subconsciously, or otherwise, reflect his belief on the nature of things. You see, Xehanort's strongest belief is light and darkness should coexist. The reason the worlds are so screwed up and separate is because there's too much light, and whenever the darkness comes up, it is eradicated immediately and without anything. And he believes that's incorrect. And his belief in that really emphasizes everything. Everything he does about the the Kai Blade, which is what I am generally going to be referring to it by the way, because Key Blade just uh, you can't see me doing the axe here. So Kai Blade. Everything about the Kai Blade, everything he did with Ventus, everything he did with Venitus, everything he talked about with Terra, every action he undertakes shows again subconsciously or consciously his belief in the fact that light and dark should be mixed. This is one of those fascinating things, because Xehanort actually does have a very strong point here. And as the series itself shows, Xehanort's actually in the right on this. But, at the same token, it is worth noting that Xehanort is an unholy monster. That he is a terrible person who ruins, ravages, and destroys lives for his own purposes, basically without remorse or pity. He is evil. Let's make this clear. And yet, and this is so weird, he actually does have a sympathetic side. Kinda. There are two moments we actually see him showing his sympathetic side. One with Ventus, and the other with Ventus. He takes Ventus to Destiny Islands, his home, as a kindness... He separated Ventus's heart into the two, artificially formed Venitas out of the darkness of his heart, but he felt like there was too little light left behind, and he felt like he had doomed Ventus to fade. So he took him there so he could rest in peace. I know that sounds like a weird thing, you know, I, I murdered you, so I'm gonna make sure your, your final moments are as peaceful as possible. But that is about as sympathetic as Zeanort gets, which is also indicative in its own right. The real thing I want to talk about is twofold. Xehanort is from Destiny Islands. We know this for a fact now. We also know that Xehanort and Ericus worked under the same master previously, and we're pretty damn sure it was not Yensid. It is extremely likely, given the timing of things, that the master that, Yen- that arguably Yensid, Zaynord, and Ericus all were under, was the same generation, A.K.A the immediate survivors and the founders of the Order from the Keyblade War. In other words, it didn't actually happen all that long ago. And on top of that, that's relevant because it really gets across the point that Xehanort, given his age, probably lived through part of the Keyblade War. Saw it firsthand, knew the kind of devastation it could cause. Might not have understood what it actually was at the time, but certainly could look back on that. And I think that would also go a long way towards explaining his mentality. But there's one other thing here that I really want to mention. Again, his connection to Destiny Islands is emphasized several times, and each time it's done basically without reason that we know about. I mentioned earlier the whole thing about Destiny Islands and whatnot. I feel like there is more to Destiny Islands than we know. And I feel like it is one of two things. One, it is a Nexus world of some sort that we don't know. Whether this was originally, you know, this is, maybe this is the only part, portion of the original world, the original realm that still exists. Maybe this is the spot where the final uh, battle actually happened of the Keyblade War. Maybe this place is so significant because of the people who have lived there, including Xehanort and Sora. Two of, let's just face it, the two most... Im- Im- impacting characters of the entire series. We don't actually know. If you were to ask my opinion on the matter, I think it's a combination of two things. One, I think Destiny Islands, like I already said, is actually one of the only pieces of the original world that is stayed the way it was before. In other words, this is a this is a remnant of the original world, the combined world, realm of light, realm of dark didn't exist. It was just the, the world, right? The realm. Instead of the multiple worlds in the realm of light, the multiple realms in the world of darkness, or worlds in the realm of darkness, excuse me. But on top of that, it is my belief that because of that, a piece of Kingdom Hearts itself, or a connection, actually I'm going to use that word because it's better, a connection to Kingdom Hearts itself remained here. I was going to save this for later, but let's go ahead and talk about Ventus's true nature and my theories on Sora now, because it relates to what I'm saying right now. I have said before that I feel like Sora is actually a manifestation in some way or another of Kingdom Hearts itself. Let's get out a couple of actual facts before we get into theories here. First of all, we've never seen Kingdom Hearts. No, oh, way. we've seen it like three times, I hear you saying. Eh. We have seen the doorway to it twice. We have seen something that was the door to light once. Except, in all cases... That wasn't actually true. The door was actually just to the Realm of Darkness, with Mickey and Riku on the other side. The other two doors, the Blue Heart and the White Heart, were intended as ways to conduct the power of Kingdom Hearts through it. They always referred to it as Kingdom Hearts, but the way they talked about it and the way they show it, it was always pretty obvious. This was just a a tool to access Kingdom Hearts. The Blue Heart, summoned by the Kai Blade, and the White Heart, summoned artificially by shoving hearts into it by the thousands These two things and the door are not Kingdom Hearts. We've never seen Kingdom Hearts. And here's the interesting part. We don't actually know what Kingdom Hearts is. Everyone keeps assuming Kingdom Hearts is the amalgamation of every heart. And that's certainly possible. And that may indeed be it. But we don't know that. Nobody in the setting actually knows what Kingdom Hearts is. They only have legend and theory to go off of. I point to Ansem the Wise comment about how we know so little, uh, paraphrased, we know so little about Hearts and about Kingdom Hearts itself. Ansem the Wise, someone who, granted, has made mistakes, but in that moment was clearly in his right mind, said flat out, we don't know. And I feel like there's more to the situation than there appears. I don't. I. I have theories, but I have only wild theories because we have so little information on the matter. I don't actually know what Kingdom Hearts is either. But what I do think is that Sora is a direct manifestation of it. Sora was born with Ventus's heart. This is a hard thing to explain for me because I don't actually have the proper nouns or pronouns to explain this. So I'm going to try the best I can. Okay. Ventus's heart was was split in two. All of the darkness was ripped out and created a whole new being, Venetus. Ventus was left behind with absolutely no darkness in him, not a trace. But, as Xehanort himself would be no doubt amused to find, that left Ventus broken, unconscious, and probably going to die. Because he was missing part of his heart. But I say that, but it was also because the light and the dark combined made him who he was. You follow? When he was dying, Sora's heart, because Sora hadn't actually been born yet, found Ventus on Destiny Islands, by the way, and offered to save him and it did so by actually merging in a way that i don't know how to properly explain because basically what happened is one heart was made that two people are using you follow where i'm going with this but here's the weird part because it's not actually one heart it is two hearts they're just the same heart even though they're segregate (laughs) you see why this is kind of hard to explain and so Sora's heart and Ventus's heart is literally the same heart, even though they are different, well, even though they are separate, I should say. That explains a lot of everything. The interactions with Roxas, everything that happened between uh, all of the three members and Sora, the connections between Sora and the later characters, all of this is made sense by this simple act. And this is one of the reasons why I feel Sora is this way. Probably has no knowledge or understanding of it. Because one of the things Sora does that no one else does, literally, in the whole series, is Sora is connected to everyone else he touches in some way or another, and it's a metaphysical and literal connection in both, you understand? Sora is the only character in the series who people actively forget about when his heart is mixed up, when his memories are mixed up. They forget about him because of the way he's connected to them. That doesn't happen for anybody else. Now, it is possible that's just because that's the way memories work in this setting. But I think it's more likely because Sora isn't actually a normal person. You see where I'm going with this? Another thing I want to point out here is that my nose itches. That's a terrible thing. His connections to everyone is something that is attempted to be artificially emulated, but failed in in every way, shape, and form. What I mean by that is I'm talking, of course, about the 13 darknesses of Xehanort his attempt to connect all those people to him. But he can't do what Sora does. So what he just does is he just puts a piece of his heart into all of them and basically just is all of them. You know, it's kind of like a hive mind sort of thing is the impression we're given. Um, the What Sora does is literally be connected to all these people but still leave them distinct the impression we're given very strongly is that Shion and Ventus, and Roxas, and Sora, are all still distinct people. You see where I'm going with this? You see the difference? Anyways, all of this is just theories, and I just wanted to toss it to you. I know I talked about this during my Kingdom Hearts 2 lore run, but having replayed this and having been started going through uh, Dream Drop Distance a little bit, I'm actually a lot more certain of this theory than I was before, so... One of the other things I want to mention here about Xehanort before we move on. First of all, Xehanort's power is on full display at this. This is a good thing. First of all, it emphasizes how strong our three characters are that they're able to withstand him at all. They never actually really beat him. Not really. But more than that, when you have a villain like this, one of the good things to do is to have him start at the height of his power. I know this sounds weird. But you want him to be weaker when you encounter him later on. Because the next thing you want to do is have him ramp up in power to get back to this point for the climactic finale. You see where I'm going with this? So we have Xehanort pretty much at the height of his power right now. Moving mountains, commanding thousands of blades, effortlessly crushing Terra Ventus. You know, all this fun stuff. Just incredibly powerful. Destroys a, a, half a planet just by himself. And... And then he loses all that power thanks to the loss of his memory, thanks to the improper joining with Terranor, thanks to his defeat by the Langer's All these things may cause him to lose his power significantly, and he goes down here. Then he splits into two. Now, even down here, he is you know, way above everything else, but you get the point. He splits into Ansem, splits into Zemnus, They do their things. And then they, they, Xehanort himself returns, and this way, he can... The, the third game over here, which will have Xehanort as the primary villain again, can have this level of power again, now that the heroes who started down here have reached this point over the course of the story. You see where I'm going with this? It's, it's, a, it's something you do deliberately, especially from, a, not even from a gameplay perspective, but from a storytelling perspective, from a style perspective, from a writer's perspective, because you really want the, that last thing to feel epic, but still makes sense that the heroes have a chance. And the only way to do that is make sure the villain doesn't start at full power when the heroes first encounter him. Unless you do this thing, which they did in Birth by Sleep, and it was brilliant. The other thing I want to mention is I like how close Xehanort came to succeeding in his hasty plans by his own admission. In other words, the plans he basically just threw together in order to make this all happen, never mind his long-term plans, which is the ones we see in you know, every other game. Um, if not for Aqua... He would have won handily, even though the lingering Sentiment beat him, defeated him, I should say. He still would have won, if not for one other thing about Ventus, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's go ahead and get on to Erykus. Erykus, Erykus, Erykus. Do you know how long it took me to memorize how to pronounce that name? I don't know why. It's not really a a difficult pronunciation. Ericus is pretty much the embodiment of light. Is not good. No offense to the man. And I just like to point out, just like I did with Xehanort, Mark Hamill as Ericus was phenomenal. Mark Hamill is a great voice actor. Uh, even ignoring the Joker, which is hard to do, Mark Hamill does a phenomenal job of Ericus. But he really shows someone who is basically a fanatic. And it's funny that I mentioned that because, you know, there are a lot of Star Wars touches in this game, all things considered. Uh, I'll talk about that in just more detail in just a bit. But Ericus is clearly a true believer in the cause. He is someone who really believes in the idea of light, all light, no darkness, light, no darkness, destroy the darkness, light. You, know, you see? You know, it's a very zealot kind of a thing. And it's interesting in its own right because while we see that Ericus is a decent person who is wrong, we see Xehanort is an evil person who is right and it makes for an interesting contrast between the two characters. On top of that, <sighs> I hate to point this out, because Xehanort is without question the villain here, but when we see the flashback where, where Xehanort is, agree- is going to go ahead and leave to pursue his experiment, he leaves kind of amicably. He tells Ericus, I'm going to do this to try and remerge light and dark, and then I'm going to see what happens. You know, th- We're going to bring about the apocalypse, we're going to bring about the cataclysm, we're going to fix everything. Now, Ericus rightly calls him out on that, but then Xehanort just turns to leave. It is Ericus who attacks him first. It is Ericus who tries who takes the aggression on him. It is Xehanort who then defeats him. Well, I shouldn't even say defeats him. He attacks him. Once. And then he turns to leave. I just feel like pointing that out, because again, it's an interesting dichotomy between the two characters. I should, of course, also point out that it is Ericus who rose his weapon against Ventus. And that I think more than anything else, that really speaks to the zealotry that Ericus abides by. His idea that I have to kill this boy because I have no other choice in order to save everything. Right. Now, you can argue whether he was in the right or the wrong or not, but the fact that he was willing to do that at all, with so little apprehension, really, really speaks to it. Especially given the fact that he goes through with this plan when Terra shows up to protect Ventus and calls him out on it. Instead, Ericus decides to go ahead and just fight Terra. And then Terra curb-stomps him. <laughs> That's just interesting in its own right, because... Terra, well, I'll talk about Terra's relative power later, especially with relation to Aqua and, you know, the other Masters. But it is worth noting Terra is not actually a Keyblade Master. He's just really strong. Which may sound familiar, actually, if you think about it. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, let's talk about the thing I mentioned, the Star Wars connection, okay? Like I said... Birth by Sleep has a very strong connection. The whole series really does. But Birth by Sleep, more than anything else, has a very strong connection to what I call the golden age of Star Wars when the light side wasn't good, the dark side wasn't bad. There was a great deal of characterization. There were some really good books coming out. You know, it, it was it was a good time, all things considered. Then it kind of went, whew, and then it went, phew and then it went, Rough approximation. So during that period of time, this whole thing basically was being played out. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of the original ideas was the reason the Jedi Order had screwed up so badly and failed so miserably, twice, actually, but we'll talk about the KOTOR 2 instance specifically, is because they had become so bound by their zealotry, by their ideal that light is good, and we cannot tolerate darkness even to a small extent. Even the tiniest mount is not tolerable. And then the Jedi Order died (laughs) as a direct result of this. I mention this, though, because we get a lot of impressions of the, for lack of a better term, Keyblade Order being in its final days as a result of this. Two Masters, two, walking around the realms, and between them they have a grand total of three apprentices, only one of which actually completes the Mastery Mark exam thing. You see where I'm going with this? You get the impression that from the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands that were before, that after that they decided to bring things down a bit with the Order, and then the masters who taught Xehanort and Ericus and Yensid were perhaps just master. You get where I'm going with this. It's, 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 it has a very distinct feeling of overreaction and the last gasps of what used to be something that was great, both at the same time, and again, a lot of obvious connotations with the Jedi. On top of that, we also have the the problem, and the problem is very simple. If you are telling someone something for your their whole life because you believe in it, but you are basically provably wrong throughout the course of the overall setting, you know, if you had a third-person perspective, like oh I don't know, if you were watching a video game or whatever, and you could tell everything, you know, they're wrong. They, of course, don't know this. They believe in the cause. But my point is that they are wrong. And so then the person they are teaching, who has been taught this their whole life, goes out and sees, well, now this doesn't make sense. Well, this is a little bit different. Well, this is kind of a gray area. Well, this is wrong. You know, it messes with them. This is kind of the same thing that should have happened if it had been written properly to Anakin Skywalker. And this is exactly what happens to Terra and Ventus and Aqua throughout the course of this game. (sighs) Hmm? Hmm. I only have a few last points, I swear. I already talked about... uh, I already talked about that. Let's talk about Vanitas. Vanitas is interesting to me for many reasons, because he is evil. But, on top of being, you know, the bad guy, he is obviously also broken. It is pretty obvious that Vanitas is someone who is wrong in the head. And I think that is an interesting concept because I feel like this is a portrait of what Ventus could have become if Sora had not intervened and fixed his heart. Now, yes, we know Ventus, obviously, was just going to fade. At least that's what we assume was going to happen. But what if he didn't? What if he was a being of pure light? But still half of a being of pure light. Because I think that's the real problem here. Obviously, we do see beings that are of pure light and pure darkness throughout the course of this series. Uh, all the princesses of heart, heart excuse me, are a great example of pure light. We only know one, uh, well, other than Heartless, we only know one example of a pure darkness. Uh, I guess two, if you want to count that. But the real one being Venetus himself. But the point being, I feel like Ventus, if he had been this pure light broken being, would have been just as screwed up in the head, if, if you follow where I'm going with that. On top of that, it's also a nice touch hmm. Excuse me, that the series remains consistent about how you have to defend yourself from darkness. What I mean by that is, you know, in some of the more recent stuff, they have the cloaks, you know? And these cloaks are specifically designed to prevent the person within from being affected by darkness, right? To some extent or another. In this game, we have the armor. That everyone has. Ericus has one, Xehanort has one. We only see that in the optional content, but still. And of course the three main characters have one. Vanitas is one of the only characters who actually uses the paths of darkne- of you know the pathways of darkness without needing one. Which makes perfect sense because he is a being of pure dark. He would be no more affected than, by it than the heartless would. In a way, I feel like Vanitas is actually the proto-heartless. I know he isn't. Because, you know, we know the Heartless are already about right and about this point. We know the Heartless have been around since before this point. We don't know many details about them, but we know they were there. But, what we do know is that Vanitas himself is, in many ways, a sentient Heartless, for all intents and purposes. And it makes you wonder what Ventus would have been, again, if his heart hadn't been artificially completed by Sora. One other thing I want to mention about Ventus... Uh, excuse me, are uh, Two things, actually. One, they go out of their way to emphasize Venitus's strength on multiple occasions. He's actually probably one of the hardest bosses, repeating bosses, that you fight throughout the series, in my opinion. Or, throughout the, the game, I should say, excuse me. But on top of that, just about every cutscene after you fight him, the character who fights him is just, you know, oh my god, that was a terrible, hard, you know, difficult fight, I barely made it through it kind of a thing. And with good reason, because he is actually pretty rough. But my point is, even from a story perspective, they emphasize that Vanitas is very strong, Two things of note here. One, the obvious one, that that is Xehanort's training at work, because Xehanort trained Venitas for years while Ventus was being trained by Eraqus. Two, that is Ventus, and possibly Sora. This is kind of hard to debate, because how much of a connection Sora Soraventus over here has with Vanitas is debatable. But it is my, my belief and opinion that there is a connection there. I mean, ignoring the fact that Venitus looks like Sora, and ignoring the fact that Vinitas, you know, is voiced act by uh, Osmed or whatever his name is, the guy who voices Sora, even ignoring those obvious connections, I feel like there is an actual connection between the, the heart over here and Vanitas' heart. And I feel like that is part of why he is so strong. It's because he has access to that ridiculously powerful heart. Even if only a little bit. And a little bit is all it takes to overpower you like that. Because as we've established, the reason Sora is so strong is because of his heart and his connections to everyone. More fuel to the fire about that whole Kingdom Hearts manifestation thing. I'd just like to point that out. Finally. Finally. This was a wonderful touch. Crisis Core did this too. It is very rare that a game will introduce a gameplay mechanic whose real only purpose is to make a storyline point. One of the ones in this one, and I've basically barely talked about it, excuse me, is delinking or dimension linking. The idea is you form a dimensional link with someone else's heart, and you gain access to some of of the power that is a manifest of your connection to them. It's not their power, per se. It's a manifestation of your connection with them, in lore at least. So, you, so in, in gameplay terms, you basically gain some abilities that they would have or are indicative of them and their relationship with you, right? And, you know, again, Terra forming the link with M- Maleficent was a good example of using that for storytelling for purposes. But as you're fighting Venetus as Ventus in your own, you know, in, in the, the station area, the heart of the, the, the heart, in, within your heart, and then you shatter the heart, Ventus forms a dimension link with Venetus, gains all his powers, and uses them to destroy him. Utterly extinguishes Venitas from within. While outside uh, Aqua is defeating Ventus I'm sorry, defeating Venetus from without. It's actually a wonderful, wonderful, awesome section. Tons of fun. It was very much a hell yes moment, and it was a wonderful usage of gameplay and story integration I just had to share with you. <sighs> okay, I talked about Sora's thing. This is where I actually made my note about Sora's true nature. Only a few things left to talk about, I swear. One last character I want to talk about, and then we get into theory crafting, okay? Braig probably my second favorite character in the series. Maybe third. Lee has kind of moved his way up lately. That's all I'm going to say about that if you haven't played Dream Drop Distance. Bragg's awesome. I've said before, especially in my video where I talked about the organization members, that it is my personal belief that Bragg is probably the smartest character in the series. And I don't mean book smart. I don't mean scientific smart. I mean he has a brain and he uses it constantly. Birth by Sleep really re-emphasized that point. One of the things we see often, is Bragg will go out of his way to tell you the truth in a way that you can't actually, you, you will intentionally interpret it in a way that is not actually the truth, you know what I mean? He's very good on top of that at actually being One of the things Brigg does very well is he will pretend to be stupider, weaker, you know, less observant, just generally worse than he actually is. Which is an extremely smart thing to do when you really think about it. It will encourage other people to underestimate you. It will ensure you always have an upper edge. Especially for someone as manipulative as Braig is. And we know he's been working with, with Xanord for at least a while. It's worth noting that the only person who actually calls Braig out on his manipulations is Aqua. And yet the funny part is, she calls him out on his manipulations. But that itself was a manipulation. <laughs> And he reveals this at the end because that serves his purpose. You see where I'm going with this? He even mentions, Ah, I knew I shouldn't have fought a Keyblade Master. Even though he's actually fine. He's not even injured. Because he's a lot stronger than he makes himself to be. You get where I'm going with this. This game really fleshed out the character a great deal. Most of what I've talked about, about him being smart, about all those things I've already said in previous games, pretty much came from this game and the presentation of Brig before he became Zigbar. But it's also worth noting, as I've mentioned before, you know what what you are as a nobody tends to vary. It is pretty obvious that Brig and Zigbar pretty much are the same person for all intents and purposes. No change in personality, mindset, appearance, well, some appearance. But my point is, uh, appearances how they present themselves. No difference in charisma. You, you get where I'm going with this. And I think this game really shows that in Spades. I, I don't really have much else to add because I've already talked about it in other videos. I just wanted to praise the usage of Brag in this game. When I saw him show up at the Keyblade graveyard, I was just like, yes! Can't wait to fight you! Because I was Adventus at the time, and I saw Aqua running, and I was like, oh, it's going to be a fight for me on Aqua. It's going to be great! I can't wait. I'd also like to point out, not counting the optional bosses, Braig was actually the hardest boss in the game for me, as Aqua. Keeping in mind, I was ludicrously overpowered. He is fast, he is strong, he teleports constantly. You, can't, you basically can't get a combo off on him, and most of your status effects don't really work on him. He was a really well-designed fight, and he really showed his chops in the fight. It was great. Alright. Let's talk about Zemnus. One of the things I have had a theory on for a long time is that the reason Zemnus is insane is because of Terra. Let me back up a second. If you really pay attention to Zemnus in his portrayal in Kingdom Hearts 2 and admittedly in Dream Drop Distance as well, he is pretty obviously insane. He is un he's not I mean most people when they think insane they think, you know, Joker. Or they think someone obvious. But no, he is just what I like to call the quietly broken insane. Someone who just isn't quite right. And his word choice and his motions and the way he does things, the way he emphasizes this but not that. It's just off. And he is, in many ways, off. Despite everything. Despite his power, despite his intellect. You see where I'm going with this? It is my opinion... And the that the secret ending of this really shows why that is. I'll get to the the real connection here in just a moment. But the reality of this situation is, Zemnis unquestionably has pieces of Terra in him. This is actually confirmed by by the creators, by Nomura himself. We don't know if Ansem the Wise does. Or I'm sorry, Ansem the Seeker of Darkness. We don't know if his heartless does, but we know his nobody does. Would it not make perfect sense that one of the reasons Xemnas is so unstable is because he still has pieces of Terra in him? Neither memories or echoes or actual pieces of the heart? we don't know. But all of his interactions, his insistence upon the work in Oblivion Castle, uh, his, his work with the Kingdom Hearts, everything about rage and all that fun stuff... It all makes sense when you think about it from, from that perspective, and I think that's really the, rain, the main reason behind his behavioral choices. Let's just put it like that. Um, I said I'd talk about that. Let's talk about Xehanort and Terra, okay? We have a scene where Xehanort and Terra are basically talking to each other, and we get the strong impression that this is their two hearts in conflict with each other. One question. Where are they? Now, that may sound like a duh thing, but think about it for a moment. Where are they? Because, as we learn, t- this happens after Aqua has saved Terranort. By herself choosing to go to the Realm of Darkness. At which point Terranort loses his memories. So Terranort is there, but Xehanort, who's talking with Terra, has all his memories. And is talking even talking about his future plans. So where are they? And more importantly... When are they? I know I usually don't talk about future games in these things, but I have to give you a spoiler for Dream Drop Distance. I'm going to give you a bit of a warning, okay? Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to edit anything in. I'm just going to say, this is, this is your warning. I wanted to pause there so you have a chance to stop this. In Dream Drop Distance, we learn that Xehanort, for reasons I don't want to go into, has access to a form of time travel and he gathers together all of the various pieces of himself at one spot to create his 13 darknesses. Xehanort himself, the original, shows up there. Now, originally, we all thought it would be because Zemnus and Ansem, his, his Heartless and his nobody, had been destroyed, that Xehanort would be remade, and yet Zemnus and Ansem are still out and about. So what point in time were they from, or is this after? How did they survive? But the real question I'm trying to get to here is, what point in time was that Xehanort from? Because it was clearly and distinctively after Birth by Sleep. Because he knew about all the events of it. you get where I'm going with this? I don't really have any actual uh, conclusions here to share with you. Just, just questions and analyses. Because if you really think about this, Xehanort had to have come from some point in time but it's very clear that his heart is still in contention with the heart of Terra and Ericus. And it is theoretically possible, I've seen this theory thrown around a bit, and I wanted to share it with you. I, I don't claim uh, ownership of this. Several other people came up with this. Not in a bad thing, I'm just trying to give credit where credit is due. Several other people have given put forth the theory that all those 13 darknesses not only have a piece of Xehanort's heart in them, but terras and ericus's too and that might ultimately ruin his plans and yet also bring about the actual unification of what he really wanted to begin with because that is a heart of darkness of light and of both in in the thirteen people you see where you see where that's coming from it's a wonderful little theory and i'd actually really like it if it turned out to be true because i love the idea i wish i'd come up with it uh, speaking of which, one other thing I want to talk about in brief here is the the, the fact that they did a really nice job with Eraqus falling into Terra. I know I just kind of skipped by this earlier. When Terra defeats Eraqus and he falls into him, it's pretty obvious Ericus did that on purpose, but even ignoring that fact, the allusion to the scene when Kyrie does the same thing to Sora is pretty obvious in hindsight. I didn't—I admittedly didn't catch it my first time around. But seeing it the second time, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's when his heart came in there. Yeah, okay. So, just wanted to point that out. Let's talk about my next theory here. The Keyblade Inheritance Ceremony. That's actually what it's called. I looked it up. Keyblade Inheritance Ceremony. It's something you do when you bequeath someone with the ability to summon a Keyblade. Now, throughout the series, we've learned that there is a difference between the keyblades and a keyblade. So, this is something that gives you the ability to summon a keyblade. It's something that you draw from your heart and the connections to that heart to manifest into a physical weapon which has the properties of a keyblade, right? The keyblades are always stronger and always much more connected to the entire setting. We know of three the keyblades. The chi Blade. The kingdom, the kingdom Key and the Kingdom Key D. These should all sound familiar. But what I'm getting at here is the Inheritance Ceremony is something they do to awaken that ability to summon a Keyblade within someone. We actually see Terra... The only time we ever see this in Ceremony officially formally done is Terra doing it to Riku. Fun fact, though. Sora gains the ability to summon a Keyblade, too. Now... This is a weird point, because the obvious connection here is that because the, the the joint heart thing between Sarah and Ventus, that's why Sora can wield a Keyblade. We also know, through, due to word of God, this is why Sora can wield two Keyblades, because he has more than one heart. Roxas himself showed that ability when he had Shion's and his own heart in him. It requires more than one heart to do wield a Keyblade. This is something that's pretty adamant in the series. And yet, I feel like it might be interesting if it wasn't something that Sora simply had innately within him anyways, due to his nature. After all, what is the Keyblade he summons but THE Keyblade? The Kingdom Key. For food for thought. More thoughts about the Inheritance Ceremony. I already talked about the Kyrie thing, I don't really have much else to add there, uh, But one thing that I find absolutely fascinating is the idea that... How do I put this? Riku receives the ceremony. Sora doesn't, but there's at least two ways he could have summoned it. Kairi received the ceremony. All three of the main characters do. We know their masters did, too. We know that Xehanort and Ericus both had the ceremony done to them. We know Mickey had the ceremony done to him by Yensid. Where did Axel's, a.k.a. Lee's, Keyblade come from? Now, there's two thoughts on this. We do know for a fact that being a Keyblade Master is not required to perform the ceremony. We know this because Terra does it. He has not completed his Mark of Mastery. However, one thing we also know is Terra is as powerful as a Keyblade Master. I mentioned this earlier, how I was going to come back to this point. Terra... Ooh, Terra has got his cord stuck. Wah. Terra is actually as powerful as a Keyblade Master. He is actually phenomenally strong, all things considered. He is also the only character um, in the series, actually, who has gone toe-to-toe with Xehanort and managed to come out relatively on top of it. I, I, actually, I realized in the middle of that sentence that's not quite true. Uh, there is one other who manages it, that's Aqua, of course, which doesn't surprise me. So Aqua and Terra both manage that fact. But that's again that just further emphasizes my point. The actual Keyblade Master who is ridiculously powerful and the Omni Mage, as I mentioned earlier, and Terra, who just through raw brute strength, basically, in his heart and in his in his power, manages to take on Xeanort and actually go toe to toe with him and basically succeed. In his prime, no less. Both of those were against Terranort, when he had a much younger, stronger body to, to back him up with, you know? So Terra was sufficiently strong to do the ceremony without actually being a master. So there's several different people who could have theoretically done this ceremony to, uh, you know, to, to Lee without us seeing it. One obvious possibility, and almost stupidly obvious, is Yen Sid because we know for a fact that Yen did the accelerated training with Lee in order to get him accustomed to this whole Keyblade thing, right? Even though he doesn't actually summon it till the end, we know he underwent that accelerated training. I think there's a few more interesting ways to interpret where he gets his Keyblade from, and I'm not going to toss out ideas because, frankly, I've got like five, and I don't want to cut this video any longer. I'm basically at the end of my th- thing here, but there's one last point I want to go into before I finish this off. Basically, I think it's extremely likely that Lee actually did have the ceremony done to him unintentionally. And if I were to guess where it happened, my biggest guess, if you really asked me to guess, I'd say it happened with Ventus. And ignoring the obvious joke of, you know, you and I are better friends than me and Issa here, I think his connection there through the ceremony and through the events of the, the brief but still extant events of Birth by Sleep, explain why Lee, and later Axel, had such a strong connection to Sora and Roxas and Shion. Make sense? Or should I say, got it memorized? <laughs> Let's get to my final point. This is another one of those theory things, like Sora is actually Kingdom Hearts Manifested, or Avatar, or whatever, that I only have a theory on. But it's actually become two theories now, the more I think about it. Both of those theories are basically something that is not proven, and we won't find out until Kingdom Hearts 3 comes out. In a nutshell, who is the Ansem, the Wise, that we see throughout the games? Oh, well, I should say throughout uh, Recom and throughout Kingdom Hearts 2, and who is the one we see at the end of the secret ending, at the end of Birth by Sleep? The obvious answer is they are the same one. It is not unreasonable to assume that the destruction of the Artificial Kingdom of Hearts shot Ansem the Wise into the Realm of Darkness and left him there abandoned. couple of questions, though. One, why did his memory get muddled? It wasn't erased. He still has a bit of his memory. He still remembers Sora's name, for that matter. But obviously his memory is muddled. Point two. This is actually kind of important. He's got a cloak. Where did he get a cloak? How did he make one with nothing to make it with? Point three, he doesn't. The one in the realm of darkness at the end of Birth by Sleep doesn't actually quite act like Ansem the Wise. Now, this all of this can be explained as him being the same guy. It really can. It's not unreasonable to assume that. But my two theories are that they are different, and the way that these branches like this. Theory one. This is the one I hold. I've held for some time when Deez, when Ansem the Wise was in the Realm of Darkness, banished there by his apprentices, by Zemna or by, you know, Xehanort I believe that when he decided to make the decision to accept the Darkness to embrace it, he did the same thing his counterpart did we know that Z- Ansem, aka Xehanort, embraced the Darkness willingly and knowingly and as a result, split but his heartless Retained his personality and his mindset and his memory, didn't become a mindless beast of instinct like most heartless do. And then, of course, Xemnas went off to do his own thing. We know this is the one, well, this is one of like three instances ever of a heartless retaining any sense of its own, or previous self. I think it's actually two instances now that I'm thinking about it. Would it not make sense that when Ansem the Wise did that, he similarly split? It would also be kind of ironically. Uh, appropriate when you think about it from a thematic perspective that Ansem the fake you know the seeker of darkness and Ansem the wise both decided for completely opposite reasons and because of each other in many ways to accept the darkness and split as a result of that and so the Ansem we see is either the heartless or the nobody but if I were to put a guess on it I'd say it was the heartless I'd say that ansem we've seen in chain of memories that we read about in his reports and that we see in kingdom hearts 2 was his heartless that was probably eradicated by the by the, the destruction of the artificial kingdom hearts also there's two reasons why i think that makes sense number 1 well, I mean, it, it just—I actually can't explain it. I have one point to really explain in my favor. It makes more sense to me in my head. Would be my second point, but I know that doesn't really fit. But and as a writer, that's what I would do. But there is one very strong reason why I would do that as a writer, and that's because, as we know, if a heartless is destroyed and then a nobody is destroyed, they are reconstituted. This has happens in Trump Distance for the first time, but it happens to like six or seven people. This is why we have Lee back. This is why we have Xehanort back. You know, this is why all these things are happening. So if you're going to destroy either the Heartless or the Nobody of Ansem the Wise first, I would probably destroy the Heartless first to leave that possibility. You see where I'm going with this? The, and of course, I could point out that the Ansem the Wise in the in the Realm of Darkness has the Nobody code, which actually Xehanort originally came up with, so Whatever. But, you know, he does have the cloak, which even ignoring any literal connotations has the thematic connotations of most people associate this with the nobodies and with good reason. On top of that, we see what it's like to have a nobody who doesn't have constant stimuli helping them. Roxas and Shion both we see firsthand. It's very heavily hinted that every nobody goes through this. But we see these two firsthand as they go through the adjustment period and basically form a personality. Because they didn't really have one when they were first made. But both of those happened because of constant work and effort on the part of the organization members who were not only interested in that, but they had a few people who were actually interested in them. Axel especially what would happen if that nobody was left to just flounder for years and years, or however long it actually is? We know it's a bare minimum of a year and a half to two years. Bare minimum. What would happen to a nobody who was like that? Wouldn't they act a little bit differently? Wouldn't their memories be a little muddled? Wouldn't they be kind of disconnected in their organization? Now, of course, here's something that you could point out immediately. How does he remember any of the events of Kingdom Hearts 2? Because he remembers Sora. And he remembers that he put the data in him. Actually that's pretty easily explainable too. Because we have a very strong hint, not confirmed, that Zemna when Ansem the Seeker of the Darkness, the, the Heartless, was destroyed, Zemnus regained a fair decent portion of his memories and his experiences from that gathering. That's admittedly stretching it just a little bit, but it wouldn't surprise me that he got that our good friend Ansem the Wise. Nobody got some of the memories of his heartless self in the process, and of course you could always argue that the two are connected because that's true too. You know, the heart, the 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 nobody and their other have always been connected throughout the whole series. So there's also that side of things. You know, Sora crying at things he's never experienced just comes to mind immediately. But you get my point. Long story short, that's my main theory about that. I'll go and tell you the second theory just for the sake of completion. The second theory is actually much simpler and more obvious: that the split still happened but much later. The destruction of the kingdom of the artificial Kingdom Hearts is actually what causes the split. And the Ansem, the Wise we see in Dream you know, at the end in the secret ending after the events of Kingdom Hearts Two, is either the nobody or the heartless. It doesn't even matter. It could he he could actually even be a lingering sentiment, which is something that also happens. But one way or another he is a piece of the original Ansem that is left here. And actually that makes its own degree of sense, doesn't it? What if, what he, what if he did when he originally looked into the darkness in the realm of darkness, he left a piece of himself behind, but it wasn't a whole being, like you know, Venitus or a nobody or anything like that. It was just a piece of himself, a piece of his soul, if you will. And then he goes off and does all these things, and and then fragments of that go back to that piece and reconstitute into what is left of him basically an echo of the original Ansem the Wise. It would also be interesting to see that from a perspective of a writer, because that way you don't, you're do not you not quite copping out and saying that Ansem the Wise survived the big dramatic explosion, but at the same time you can still have the character present and have a significant a- impact on the story, because it's effectively a new character. You see where I'm going with this? I think both of these are pretty likely, all things considered. It would be nice to see them come true. They probably won't. But I just wanted to give you guys some food for thought. So that's it. My throat hurts like crazy. I've talked for, I don't even know how long. How long are we talking here? Oh my goodness. This is the longest video I've done in a while. (sighs) I do genuinely hope it's been worth the wait. I apologize, and hopefully this will, there will never be, a wait like, uh, never be a wait like this again. As I mentioned, I've already started playing through Dream Drop Distance again so that I can pretty much get started on it immediately. I've got a few more videos I'm going to push out first. But either way, I've had a lot of fun, and I hope to keep having it with you.